0: If you're interested in learning more about how to ask better questions and how that can help you build better careers and lives, then this is the episode for you, because my next guest is the founder of several companies that do just that. But before I introduce you to Michael Roderick, who started off his professional journey as an English teacher before pivoting into producing Broadway and off-Broadway shows, I want to make sure you've signed up for the Java Junkies Journal. That's T4C's newsletter that features career advice and job-seeking tips, as well as unique insights into dozens of different industries from the professionals who are actually working in them. Just head over to the Time for Coffee website at time. The number four, coffee.org and the sign up box is right there. Now, my curious coffee lovers, please grab your mug and take a chug of your favorite caffeinated brew. Cause it's time for another caffeinated career conversation. And my guest is Michael Roderick the founder and CEO of Small Pond Enterprises. It's a consulting company, an educational resource for solopreneurs, entrepreneurs, and intrapreneurs who want to accelerate the success of their business, leading to more speaking opportunities, better clients, and ultimately more influence. And they can accomplish that through teaching relationship strategy. Actually, I should say through learning relationship strategy, which is what Michael teaches. Michael is also the co-host of the Access to Anyone podcast, where he explores how networking in any business works using the latest technology and the most time-tested principles. Earlier in his career, Michael leveraged his undergraduate degrees in theater performance and education and pursued a career in teaching. Before moving into theater, and in less than two years, he'd go on to become a producer of a Tony-nominated Broadway show. Michael firmly believes that if you can ask questions in the right way, you can get anything you want. Well, let's see if that is the case. Michael, welcome to Time for Coffee. Are you caffeinated and ready to go?
1: Yes, indeed. (laughs)
0: Are you just saying that? Are you really a coffee drinker?
1: I am. I've had probably two cups today so far.
0: (laughs) Okay, nice. Nice. Do you brew it at home or?
1: Yes. Yeah. And I've I've got a grinder because I really do like the aspect of having sort of that fresh bean intensity.
0: Nice. And do you have one of those water pots that has the
1: curved... I I don't have, I'm not that, I'm not that advanced, but I do have one of those little things that you put over the coffee that you can put over the coffee cup, so that you do get, you do get a little bit more of an experience than just sort of putting a little (laughs) thing in the coffee maker. (laughs) A little
0: cup in the coffee maker. Absolutely. Well, I am all about pour overs. I am, I am, as you can imagine. Way deep into coffee, Michael. So (laughs) I love, I love the grinder and the pour over. And the most important thing is the flavor. So Mm. if you're getting good flavor, that is all that matters. And I was actually thinking before we get into the flavor of what you're doing at Small Pond Enterprises and the art of asking the right questions to advance your career and business. I was thinking we could kick things off maybe by rewinding the Michael Roderick, this is your life film, <laughs> to where most of our listeners are right now, in college, at a university. Mm. And you got your BA in theater performance and secondary education English, is that right? That
1: is correct. Correct
0: from Rhode Island College. Yes, indeed. Why did you want to study those subjects? And did you know what you were going to do with your degree when you graduated, Michael?
1: Yeah. So uh, as most people who sort of end up in the theater world, right, I had been doing theater ever since I was a young kid. I had been, you know, in you know different like drama clubs and projects and things like that. And when I went to my parents and you know had that conversation of wanting to study theater, there was also the discussion of, well, what will your real job be? <laughs> so, um, my mom had actually been a teacher and I used to go and I used to help her. She was a kindergarten teacher. So, I basically decided, okay, well, I'll double major And I'll kind of see, you know, what I think of this teaching thing. I'll see, you know, what I think of this theater thing. And I'll see kind of how they play together. And like, you know, what are my, you know, what are my thoughts, you know, in it? So I basically started, interestingly enough, I started in elementary. I started taking all of the courses for elementary, but then I was offered the opportunity to drama coach at my old high school. And when I went and I started drama coaching in my old high school, I realized that I liked the high school age better. So I actually switched to secondary ed, and then I basically overloaded my credits. So basically, because I had sort of started down one path, and I actually had to shift. So I would have instances in which I was a full credit course load, as well as a full credit course load during the summer, just to be able to sort of manage kind of both types of things.
0: Wow. That is a lot of course. <laughs> yes. <laughs> oh, my <laughs> God. So did you know what you were going to do with your degree when you
1: graduated? Yeah. I mean, I, so it would, it's interesting because you go into something and you, uh, and you have an idea of what you think you want to do. And then as you probably hear from, I would imagine, lots of guests, you realize sort of during that journey that there are things that. Aren't what you thought they were. Right. So I went in to my undergrad career basically expecting to be a famous actor. I was like, I'm gonna be an actor. I'm gonna be, you know, I'm gonna learn, I'm gonna, you know, I'm gonna be on stage, all these different types of things. But over the course of the time that I was going through that major, I ended up working in the costume studio at the school. I ended up Learning more about directing. I ended up learning more about playwriting. I ended up learning a lot about just all the different sort of varied uh, parts of the industry. So I eventually reached a point by the time I got to what I like to refer to as the victory lap, because, you know, you do that extra year to finish out all the credits, right? When I got to sort of that point, I had learned so much about the industry that I started to think, well, what if I created things? So by the time I was in that last year, I actually had written my own play, directed it, produced it, and sort of like, you know, put all the pieces together, as well as created a showcase for up and coming directors from the, you know, from, from the school. So I always sort of, I guess you could say I always sort of had that like entrepreneurial sort of aspect to things. And this was all while I was doing my student teaching and, and <laughs> practicum and you know all the things to get my education degree.
0: Amazing. So what was your first job when you graduated and how did you get it?
1: Yeah. So my very first job was a teaching job. I got... And interestingly enough, I actually was offered two jobs on the same day. So I did all of my, under, all my undergrad. I, I basically applied to a bunch of teaching jobs in Rhode Island. And I had a friend who was the pastor at another school in New York. And it was an all-boys Catholic high school on the Lower East Side. And he calls me up and he basically says, you know, I'm teaching at this school, LaSalle, and they need English teachers. Would you be interested in interviewing? And that's actually where the name of my company came from. Because I went to a bunch of my friends and I said... This is a big deal going to New York and interviewing. And they said, you know, here you're a big fish in a small pond. You go to New York, nobody's going to know you. Here in Rhode Island, everybody knows you. You can have pretty much anything you want. But if you go to New York, Like nobody's going to know you. And that's really where the name of the company came from. Because when I got to the city, that's really what I did was sort of create this small pond of people around me that really helped me sort of, you know, move my career forward and make more happen. But to to answer the question about the job, I went and I interviewed at LaSalle and I came back and I got a call from my old high school. And they asked me if I would interview there. So I didn't interview there. And I was directing one of the shows that I had written. It was over the summer. And I stopped for a break during the rehearsal. And basically two voicemails were back to back. The first was my old high school saying, We would love to make you the head of our English department and run the entire sort of drama program here. And the second was LaSalle, and where it said basically, you know, we'd love to have you as an English teacher and we have a budget to have a drama club. And I had that moment where I was just like, you know what, I could stay in Rhode Island, I could sort of do the comfortable thing. Or I could go to New York, and I could see kind of where things go. And I just, I I went for New York. And I'm really glad I did. Love that. And
0: I have to pick up on what you mentioned during that great story, Michael. And that is where you said, I will create my own pond. Mm -hmm. So, talk to me about that. This was a conscious decision on your part. So what did it involve?
1: Yeah, So so basically, I had always been pretty good at sort of getting people together. Even when I was in high school, I noticed that our school's English department didn't have a lot of money for the books and the sports department had tons. So I helped put together a fundraiser for the English department. At the time, I was the lead singer in a band and uh, it was called Morbid Cappuccino. And... (laughs) Love the coffee reference. (laughs) Yeah, right. Uh, And basically we put together a battle of the bands. And I jokingly refer to it as the night I beat George Lucas because it was the same night that Return of the Jedi was coming out again in theaters. And we thought we weren't gonna be able to sell, but we sold out the entire auditorium. But we, we only sold it out because of probably one of the wackiest things, which only a handful of people know about. So you're getting, you're, you're, you're getting a really like pristine sort of old story. So in my senior year of high school, I had taken six years of jazz dance. So I had been in recitals and I had done a bunch of, you know, uh, dancing and performance. And the uh, fashion show director came to me and asked me if I would choreograph a dance to I'm Too Sexy by Right Said Fred and dance individually like myself, you know, during the intermission. And I said, Yes. And this particular dance was so well received that it became the carrot that basically got everybody to that battle of the bands. Because I said, if we sell out, then I'm willing to at the very end of the night after I've, you know, after I've sung to do the I'm Too Sexy dance. And that was one of the main reasons why <laughs> we ended up selling out.
0: Wow. Show. That is so Cool. Well, congratulations. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Amazing. I absolutely love that. So you ended up going into the big pond, going into the <laughs> ocean, probably yes. we should call it, of New York City. Yeah. Working at LaSalle. How long did you stay mm-hmm. in education? Did you always teach English and English at the high school level?
1: Yeah, so it actually, it evolved over time. So it started out, I was basically, you know, a sophomore English teacher and we had a drama club. And over the years, I basically, so my first year of teaching was like, brutal, as most, you know, first year teachers will sort of tell you, right? Where it was like kids were fighting all the time, you can't keep control of your classroom, like you can't do sort of anything. And over that summer, I I sort of looked at my teaching through the lens of my directing. And I realized that like as a director, I was very, very sort of strict about like, this is how this goes. And like, I, I managed the time properly, I sort of made sure that the show got off the ground. But in my classroom, I was not doing that. So I came back in the second year and I had created a massive amount of structure around what I taught and what I did and my discipline problems sort of went away. So I became kind of well known as the teacher who sort of came back from the brink, if you will, and ended up really sort of running the drama club and doing that type of thing. And I had heard about this program uh, at NYU called Educational Theater. And basically, the idea was that you would take educational principles. And theatrical principles and fuse them together so that you would actually have students acting out things and doing dramatic activities to learn the material. So I started to incorporate all of this into my classroom teaching and I became well known as a result, you know, as, as a result of that, so much so that I ended up basically mentoring student teachers from that program. So if you want to talk about sort of like the highest level of inception, if you're talking about education, I was teaching while learning about teaching, while evaluating other would-be teachers and sort of breaking down things and sort of, you know, and helping them. So by the time I got to the, the end of my time at LaSalle, I was the head of the English department. I ran the drama. I still ran the drama club, but I also had gotten the pool to agree to allow me to teach a class for seniors called Exploring World Lit Through Drama, where I took world literature, And I helped them create their own plays, raise their own money, taught them sort of all of the entrepreneurial things that nobody kind of teaches you, right? And sort of like helps you with. And through all of that, I ended up being approached by the head of by the head of the school at the time. And they asked me to be the dean of discipline for summer school for a couple of years, where basically it was my job to sort of make sure everybody was sort of in line and kind of manage the whole sort of summer school experience. So yeah, there were a lot of sort of evolutions that happened. And while all of this was going on, I was running a theater company, raising money for shows, doing shows in the evenings. So I didn't sleep a lot.
0: (laughs) It doesn't sound like it. So tell us about how you created your own small pond in the big ocean of New York City.
1: Yeah. So interestingly enough, it started with a Yahoo group. So I had a friend who had been a Lincoln Center Director's Lab graduate, and she started a Yahoo group of all of the other Lincoln Center Director's Lab graduates. And at the time, This was probably about 2005, 2006, somewhere around there. Basically, people weren't getting inundated with email in the same way. So you could sign up for that group and you would get a bunch of emails from people that were going out to the group telling you about things that they needed. So basically what I would do is I would go through and because I had been a director and I had had all these actors that I knew and because I was at NYU and I knew people who were trying to cast films and all this stuff, as things would come up and people would ask, I'd just introduce people to each other. So what happened was suddenly, I was getting more and more people kind of coming to me and saying like, we need to meet, we need to hang out. So I was producing shows for them and sort of helping them with that. And while I was at NYU, one of the things that I realized was the fact that most of the students there, they loved the performing side of it, right? They loved the aspect of like doing a show, but they didn't love the producing side. They didn't love all of the logistics. And that was what I really enjoyed. So I started becoming the de facto producer for a lot of these things. And I ended up with all of these shows that I worked on and became really well known within that space. And then there was one more thing that sort of really kind of turned, like really made things really hit. And... That was, there's this thing I like to call the bar party effect, where when we first started raising money for shows, you would say to your friends, hey, here's a, you know, come to this bar and drink and, you know, donate some money to the show and we'll raise enough money if we get enough people. But the thing was, once you did one bar party and you invited somebody to the next one, basically the crowd would decrease and decrease and decrease and decrease right and that is the bar party effect is basically like anything that you create whatever it is the very first one gets the the widest amount of attention and if you just repeat what the first one was that attention will decrease and decrease and decrease over time so i was kind of in this place of we were producing shows almost every month so i said okay we can't just do bar parties so i had this idea to put a whole bunch of theater companies in the back room of a restaurant, give each theater company a table, and then invite writers, directors, producers to come and meet all of those companies for whatever the donation was. And as a result, what ended up happening was I developed all of these relationships with some very, very high profile people within the theater world, including people involved in Broadway. Because one of the things that is most important to understand about any decision maker is that decision makers almost always leverage their time as opposed to trade it so they're way less likely to say yes I'll meet with you one on one as they are to say yep I'll sit in on a panel or yes I'll take a table you know at your event when i realized that was the way to sort of bring people who i had never gotten to meet into sort of the equation that really helped build that small pond because now all these people were talking about me because I would host these events. And it was like, do you want to be part of that event? I I went to that event and I met somebody really great. And that's been a theme throughout my entire career. The fact that when I put people together, they then go and tell their friends about it. And it's one of the most powerful things that you can do. It's the knock-on effect.
0: Mm, I love that. You read a book around this time, I believe, mm-hmm. during this time, that ended up having a profound influence on your career trajectory because yep. until that time, you had been a teacher who also did drama. <laughs> yep. And that book is called Linchpin by yep. Seth Godin. Can you tell us how that book affected you?
1: Yeah, So there is a section in the book where Godin breaks down the fact that school was actually built to teach us how to be better factory workers. So he describes how the rows in the classrooms and structure and everything was really meant to just get you to keep your head down and go out into the world and be a good employee was sort of the main structure of it. And as I was reading this book, I had this moment where I was like, well, let me take a look at this here. I do, in essence, the same thing every year. And in many cases, the only thing I'm evaluated on is the standardized test at the end of it all. So I could do all of the most like, innovative things in the world, but my job always depends on whether or not I complete, you know, check these boxes. And I sort of had this moment where I just said, you know what, I'm actually a factory worker. You know, that's really what I am at this, at this point, because I'm just following the same sort of path. I'm doing this, this same thing. I'm making it interesting for myself because I don't want to be bored. But in essence, it's going to be the same thing year after year after year. And when I realized that, I basically had this moment where I said, well, I'm a gifted teacher. And I know that. I know that I have a gift for taking complex things and boiling them down. What if I taught other things? What if I stepped outside of the classroom and really incorporated all of this educational methodology that I've built into other things that I'm excited about, into other things that I want to do. And at the time, I had had that interest in Broadway producing. And I realized that there were very, very few people within the Broadway producing space who were actually doing anything teaching-oriented. Everything was a black box at the time. So I realized if I can teach some of these things, if I can help some people understand how all of this works, then... There's a pretty good chance that there could be some business opportunities there. It could be a way for me to just grow within the industry. And that's where things went. I reached out that summer and I told them, you know, I really appreciated everything, but I cannot come back in the fall. And I stepped out on my own.
0: So it was this time then that the bright lights of Broadway (laughs) (laughs) beckoned. Yep. How did the relationships that you had been cultivating until that point through the non bar party method play a role in accelerating your transition from English teacher to teacher of how to connect, but also to Broadway producer?
1: Yeah. So, in essence, what ended up happening was I found that because I was hosting things, people that I didn't know and people outside of my circles would end up showing up at those things. And I had learned about this concept of the strength of weak ties, which there was this study done by a sociologist. I think it was Granovetter was the name. And basically, the study that was done was that there were two groups of students. And the first group asked their close friends and family for jobs. And the second group asked people that they barely knew for jobs. And the second group outperformed the first. And the rule was that your strongest results come from your weakest connections. Because the people who already know you, they are almost always in a very similar social circle and are almost always connected to a lot of the same opportunities. Whereas when you meet people completely outside of your circle, when you meet people who are doing completely different things, they have entirely different networks. They have entirely sort of different worlds, right? So because I started to meet people from other industries and from other worlds, Who were different parts? Like, yes, they were part of the theater world, but they did things other than theater, right? And I didn't just say like, "Oh, I only want to hear about your theater stuff." I'd be like, "I want to hear about this real estate thing. I want to hear about this finance thing. I want to learn. I want to know as much as possible about all of the facets of sort of the work that you do." Well, suddenly, I'd get invited to a finance gathering, or I get invited to a real estate thing, or I get invited to a tech thing, and. That was what led to being introduced to some of the higher level people within Broadway. And I met some of the biggest producers, not through other people in the industry, but through somebody's personal trainer, through somebody's friend on the finance side, through somebody who sold insurance. That was where all of my major connections and opportunities came from. Every once in a while, there might be somebody who introduced me to somebody else at that producing level. But the thing that we forget specifically about industries is that industries are governed by reputation. And if I make an intro for you, and we're in the same industry, and that intro goes poorly, then it affects my reputation and it affects the way that I'm perceived within the industry. So if you imagine if we were living in the same apartment and somebody doesn't do the dishes or take out the trash, that's a major problem. Conversely, if we're living in separate apartments and you decide not to do the dishes, that's not my problem. So anybody on the outside of that circle, you know, who's in a different industry, they don't care about making that intro because they're like, it's not going to affect my hairdressing career. It's not going to affect my insurance career if it doesn't work out. So they're way less guarded about those introductions and those opportunities.
0: So what was the opportunity that presented itself to you that got you your first big producing gig?
1: Yeah. So... I had done a bunch of shows on the sort of smaller level. And there was a panel that was being presented of Broadway producers. And all these producers kind of came in and they spoke. And after the panel, as is almost always the case with a panel, everybody sort of lined up to talk to these people. And I happen to know the venue and I happen to know the general manager of the venue. This woman who basically spent her time managing that venue and often was the one who people just like didn't treat, you know, often very well because she was the one they would come to for the complaints or the issues with the venue. But I had always, I actually go back to my teaching, right? I basically would be the one to make friends with the janitor, right? And my very first job when I was in high school My very, very first job was as a dishwasher at a family restaurant in Rhode Island. And what I often like to say is that once you've cleaned other people's food and the trash off of other people's plates, you'll never look down at anybody for the rest of your life. And I would always, no matter what position people were in, I would treat them really well and I'd have conversations with them because we're people at the end of it, right? So I'm standing there and she just leans over to me and says, you know what, everybody's trying to get to these people but they're going to be at our Christmas party. And two weeks later, I get an invite to the Christmas party. So I'm at the Christmas party, and I see one of the producers that was on that panel. And I'll never forget this, because I had the most important conversation with myself that I ever had. And that was, up until this point, I very rarely ever interrupted anybody. If they were speaking, I would... Wait around, I would, you know, all these different types of things. But I was producing a show that night and I had about 15 minutes at that party. So I didn't have the time to basically wait around and see if she was going to be open later on. So I had the conversation of if you don't go and interrupt this conversation, you might as well forget about having a producing career. And I walked up to her and I interrupted. And I said, I'm so sorry to interrupt, but I saw you on the panel and I thought that you were just really fantastic. Uh, And it's been a career that I've always been really interested in and would love to just hear more about it. And she asked me, tell me about yourself, tell me about what you do. And when I told her I was a teacher, that was what sparked her interest. So she asked me a bunch of questions about teaching and we were talking and then she said, what are you doing tomorrow night? So, well, you know, I'm on the wait list for a show. And she said, nope, you're coming with me. And she invited me to a cocktail party with a bunch of members of the Broadway League. And that's where I met a number of major Broadway producers who basically said, yeah, happy to grab coffee and chat and sort of have more conversations. And that's really how I got into the industry. Oh, what a powerful
0: story, Michael. It reminds me of a philosophy that I have landed on over the last several years since starting time for coffee and interviewing incredible professionals like yourself. And that is what I call the role of magic in our Mm. life. Mm. Some people might call it serendipity. I call it magic because I have this mnemonic with M's (laughs) (laughs) and The more that I hear stories like yours, the more I am convinced that things happen in our life at all different times. But I speak specifically to our college students and our young professionals in our audience today. We cannot look in our magic globe, in our, uh, what is that globe that fortune tellers use that ball the glass crystal ball ball, there you go we can't look in a crystal ball and say you're going to meet this person at such and such a time and that person is going to change your life that person is going to open a door for you that you didn't even know existed but it will happen (laughs) if you put yourself out there (laughs) If you put yourself out there and go to those events, go to those parties, and I recognize over the last 18 months, we're doing this interview in the middle of June, 2020, that has not been possible to go out there, but hopefully that is behind us now. Put yourself in situations where magical encounters can happen. Because it's another reason why I say, don't worry. Don't worry too much about planning your life. Think about the first year or two. What do I want to do for the first year or two after I graduate to try it out? Because magic will happen. You will have these experiences that will move you in a direction that you could not have anticipated.
1: Yeah. And I often, I've had a lot of conversations with college students and with even high school students over over the years. And one of the things that I think is so important that is often forgotten about is that you may have sort of that sense as a college student that, or even a high school student that like, why would somebody talk to me? Right. And there's this dynamic of thinking, well, you know, this is like, I'm kind of like, why would they bother? Like, where's my power in all of this? And I like to bring up the fact that this is probably the most powerful position that you will ever be in in your life. Because people love to mentor others at this stage of their life. They love that aspect because you are at this point full of possibilities you are not in another career, like you are not trying to ship that like you are in this moment in your life that is loaded with possibility. And good mentors want to have those conversations. So I'll often say, this is the time to reach out to anybody that you admire to anybody that you're excited about talking to. And one little mindset Shift that I find is very, very useful in this. I call it the tennis novice versus the tennis pro approach. And basically, the tennis novice, if they miss a shot, the game is over. Because in many, many cases, they're now in their head the whole time that it didn't work and they didn't do it and all of these different types of things. And the reason for that is that the tennis novice is a slave to the product. If they don't receive the product, if they don't get the thing that they want, everything's over their world is crushed, whereas a tennis pro misses a shot. And the tennis pro misses a shot and says, okay, I missed a shot. What can I learn? Where was I standing? Where was the other person standing? And even if the tennis pro loses the game, they go back and they watch the game and they look at where those things are because they know that there's another opportunity. And that's because the tennis pro is a student of the process. And if you make yourself a student of the process, instead of a slave to the product, then failure is no longer failure. It is new information. And the second that you have new information, you can start to think about what are the variables? What are the other ways to do things? And this is how I went out and raised money for Broadway shows. This is how I built entrepreneurial ventures. This is how I reached out to people who I you know, thought would never respond to me because I approached it from that aspect of being student of the process. And if it didn't work, I didn't say, Oh man, it, it didn't work. It's about me. I said, Okay, there is a variable that I do not recognize yet, that I do not understand yet. So what other variables can I test? What other things can I tweak? And that's how pretty much any time I've tried to work on something, build something, make something happen... I've approached it from that angle.
0: What a beautiful example. And this is another way, my friends, of thinking about what is known as the growth mindset. Your mistakes, your fails are lessons that you learn. And I assure you, oftentimes those fails lead to bigger success if you have that pro mindset, that growth mindset. I love that, Michael. So just for a moment here, could you explain to our listeners what a producer does? Because we'll see, you know, the names of sometimes half a dozen producers that are listed, whether it be for a film or a Broadway production, what is it that a producer does, or are there many different types of producers?
1: Yeah. So there's there are many different types of producers, but at the heart, the main focus of the producer is to raise the money to get the show off the ground. Like you can have creative producers who will help develop the project and you know, elements of that, but they will have to raise money is, is ultimately what it what it comes down to. So if you're trying to become a producer for Broadway, you are going to very, very likely need to raise money under probably another producer, right? And find investors for that project to get that project off the ground. Once you've gotten that project off the ground, then there's a little bit more credibility. So it's easier to raise money for future projects. It's Sometimes you're able to choose your projects or you know, develop your own stuff. But at the heart of it, producing is about finding the resources to make the show happen. You talk Broadway, it's it's big checks. You go down from Broadway to off Broadway and you know independent theater and all the smaller things. It's that aspect. You've got to find the resources. And if you don't have the money, then you have to figure out other ways to do it. You have to figure out like are you going to do a reading? Are you going to do a reading at a community center? Like that is what Producers' jobs are to find the resources to make that show happen. Okay. And what
0: was it about that role that really appealed to you? As somebody who had been an actor, a performer, and involved in the process as well, what was it about that that really lit you up?
1: It was this aspect of basically being at the very... Sort of top of the whole thing and being able to see like all of the pieces coming together, right? It was this aspect of having this realization that like you are responsible for making this whole thing happen. And I was always fascinated and I've always been fascinated with sort of how things work. And this is one of those roles where like you get to learn how everything works, right? You get to be in every part. Of the industry and understand so many different things when you take on the role of a producer.
0: Incredible. Okay, wonderful. So it's really like you're the fundraiser. Exactly. If you work for a nonprofit, you would be in the development office. Maybe if you were working for a company, you would be in sales. Is that an accurate analogy? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So you need to be a good listener.
1: Yes. That's huge. That is so, so huge. And most importantly, you need to be an active listener. And I think that's something that gets lost all the time where basically, especially if we're raising money or if we're doing something and we really want something, what our brains tend to do is either go into the future or go into the past. We either start thinking, what do I want this person to say? What is you know, this outcome that I'm hoping will happen? And we stop listening to them. We stop hearing what they're saying. Or we go back into the past and we start imagining all the things that had happened before and the concerns that we had, and we're not listening. And it's that active listening. It's that active a- aspect of being like, okay, I hear exactly what you're saying and asking the good questions, not being distracted. That basically helps people stay you know, really connected to one another.
0: So speaking of asking the good questions, what advice do you have for our young listeners, Michael, as it applies to those who are trying to start their careers? How should they go about building their network and asking the right questions that will lead to potential job opportunities?
1: Yeah. So ultimately, what it comes down to is that you cannot underestimate the significance of making other people feel significant. So if you're having a conversation with somebody, and you take the time to basically be like, how much can I understand about them? And you really dig in, then they are going to feel so much more connected. And the mistake that is often made is we almost always only focus on the professional when we're having conversations, especially if we're in a job search, etc. And I'll tell you a quick story that will sort of illustrate how this can cause a lot of damage. So I remember one time having a conversation with a client who was basically telling me that the deal didn't go through. And I you know, asked them, okay, well, tell me about what the scenario was. So they told me how they sat down with this client. I think they were pitching a show. I'm pretty sure that th- that was this particular scenario. They're sitting at the coffee shop and this woman comes in who is the one who could be the potential investor and she comes rushing in and says oh my god I am so sorry I'm late I had to drop my daughter off at practice and it took forever but I'm here now and you know let's go and she sat down and this person decided to go into the pitch and walk her through like what the show was and like all of these different you know all these different types of things tell her how much you you know the investment was and it didn't happen and what do you think was the core reason why it didn't happen? Because she never asked her about her daughter. Right? She never took the time to say, oh, how old is your daughter? What was that practice? And take the time to actually acknowledge you know, that whole situation. And I refer to that often as asking blinders. We get into this place where we're so obsessed with the thing that we want that we become blind to what's actually going on with the other person. Whether or not they're really listening to us, whether or not they really care, whether or not they're paying attention, what major key things are they telling us about their life? So I think the core thing that you always have to think about is beyond just the professional, it's like, what is going on personally? Right? Like, what are the personal you know aspects of things? I also suggest thinking about what are the inspirational elements. People are asked all the time what they do. Very, very rarely are they ever asked why they're doing it to talk about their process and, and the things that you know the things that they enjoy. There's also the aspirational, which is this element of like, what do they want to do? What is their next step? What is the next thing that they're looking for? And then finally, the problematic, which is, is there anything that they could use help with? Is there anything that they're struggling with? And when you tap into each of these pieces, you're going to get a much, much clearer picture of who that individual is. And it's going to actually give you tools to be able to make introductions in the future, to be able to support them in the future. And that's one of the core ways that you really build that network. When you are seeing the world through other people's eyes... And you start threading people together who basically need that same support. Well, other people start talking about you and then they want to make intros for you. So, if somebody's going and they're trying to sort of start those conversations from a job search standpoint, don't look at it as promotion, look at it as market research. See it as you just like understand everything that you can about this person, about this industry, maybe that you're interested in going into. I've told people searching for jobs this all the time. You don't know what that life is like until you talk to somebody who has that life. I've met hundreds of actors who want to be on Broadway. And my question is always the same for them. Do you know any Broadway performers? And they'll tell me no. And I'll say, well, you have to sit down and have a conversation with a Broadway performer first so that you understand what the life is really like versus what you're seeing on television
0: they can check out an episode of Time for Coffee to hear what, uh, what it's like being an actor on Broadway or an actor in film. I think that is such fantastic advice, Michael. It's about thinking of the person who is across the table from you on the other side of the screen as a human being.
1: So important. So, so important. It's something that we just, we forget all the time when we're in that sort of asking blinders state, right? Because we're just focused on the thing that we need. And, and the interesting thing is that in the acting world, when I worked in the costume studio, the costume producer used to talk about the fact that actors would get what she called actor's brain. Where in essence, they were very, very thoughtful before they got into character. But when they were in character, they would do things like mess up their costume and do all these things because they were so focused on their character, right? And they would sort of forget about it. And same type of thing. The more we want something, the more we kind of get into kind of like that actor's brain dynamic, and we don't treat people the way that we would normally treat them. Because we're thinking about that thing that we want. And the second that somebody feels, the way way I like to think about it is that people love to feel useful. They hate to feel used. So if you basically introduce people to the ideas and the things that you're trying to accomplish, and they reach out and they want to help you, they feel useful. But the second somebody feels like, I'm just getting to know you, or I'm just having a conversation with you because I want to get something from this then they feel used. And that feeling doesn't go away. They don't want to introduce you to other people. They don't want to have other conversations. So you always, always have to pay attention to that aspect of, are you treating this person like a person? Or are you treating them like a tool to get what you want? And that's the thing you have to be very, very conscious of, especially when you're in that state of asking blinders.
0: People help people they like. Mm-hmm. And I think one of... The mistakes that people of all ages make when they network, to your point, Michael, is that they think about it as a transaction, as opposed to an opportunity for a heart-to-heart connection.
2: Mm. Yep.
0: And to get to know that person, to be curious about that person, and to learn from that person. And I know you have said very wisely that you should ask for advice, not favors. If someone feels that you really are open to learning and that that really is what the conversation is about, their guard goes down.
1: Yep. And the interesting thing is that there's basically brain chemistry behind this, right? Because if I ask you directly for something, our primitive brains are in control. And it's like we're back in the wild. And you're going to feel whether or not you realize it's happening or not, you're going to feel like I'm trying to steal your food. And I'm also going to have that same feeling. But if I ask you a question, and I say, do you have any ideas, and I invite you to be a thought partner? Well, your brain has to leave fight or flight and it has to go up to that level of reasoning. It has to go up to that place where it's like, okay, well, let me think about this and let me sort of go through you know, this process. And then it doesn't, we're partners on this. We're figuring this out. And you get so much more when that happens. I, I often like to say that you limit the things you get in life when you limit other people's creativity. So if you give people that opportunity to be creative, in helping you solve that problem, you're going to get way more out of it than if you're like, can you do this thing for me, this super specific thing? Can you give me this introduction or whatever that, you know, whatever that aspect is? If you're like, you know, this is something I'm trying to accomplish. Do you have any ideas? Do you have any thoughts on this? You never know where they're going to go next, what they're going to think of, what their creative mind is going to, is going to create for you. And you actually
0: tested
1: this, didn't you? Mm-hmm. with specific kinds
0: of non-threatening questions that would lead to more doors
1: being opened could you talk about that yeah so so in essence like basically if you are asking questions that engage people in Basically, spending more time talking about themselves, right? Like, if you stay away from a lot of the stuff that's just going to be a yes or no, then people will feel even closer and even more interested, right? So, if you say something like, Well, you know, do you like your job? That's a yes or no, right? But if you say, Let's say you're talking to somebody in finance and you say, You know, from what I've read, it seems like there are just a lot of really, really intense hours in finance. It seems like people are just sort of always, always working. I'm curious, do you agree with that? Do you see that in your own, you know, in your own career? And also, if, if so, how do you, how do you navigate it? And there's no way to just say yes or no to that, right? Like you, you, you suddenly crack this open and get people talking about things and, and, and the The thing that will always help you is specificity, right? The more that you're able to start to like dig into the details of something and the better question you ask, the more specific that question, the more you start to get them talking, the more they want to talk to you, the more directions that they're going to go. So if you really take the time to think about what are the ways that I can really make this question Something that launches a conversation, something that gets us talking about lots of different things as opposed to, okay, yeah, this is a standard sort of interrogation, if you will.
0: Fantastic advice. Before we pivot to the final questions that I like to ask all my guests, Michael, I would love to connect the dots to where you are now. Mm Mm-hmm. You founded small pond enterprises and yep. we now know the story behind it. I believe you founded it almost 20 years ago.
1: Yeah, it's a, yeah, it's been a, it's been a while.
0: <laughs> <laughs> and you have talked about some of the philosophy that you have yep. taken and that you've really landed on yep. with the small pond and you work with solopreneurs and intrapreneurs and other entrepreneurs to help them build their businesses and their profiles. Yep. The threads are there, right? Yes. The th- yeah. threads, if you look in the rear view mirror, it all, the dots are connected.
1: Yeah, so ultimately, when you start to accomplish things, people then start to ask you how you did it, right? That's the most sort of common thread that you see in any kind of expert based business, right? Like when you sort of start to move into that thought leadership space, basically people are like, "Okay, how did you get into all the doors that you got into?" So people were always curious as to how I got into all the doors that I got into. And the thing that I realized as I looked back and patterns are always the precursor to frameworks, right? So like when you see patterns in terms of how things are operating in your life, it can help you develop frameworks for how that thing could be instituted in other people's lives and how other people could sort of use it, right? So the thing that I realized was that the reason I got into all the rooms I get into was because people would talk about me when I wasn't in the room in a good way. So I basically started to ask, okay, can I teach others how to develop that level of referability where basically people just want to introduce you to other people? And the thing is in the entertainment industry that's something that's really valuable but like one of the things that I learned as I was doing this was in the business world that's very valuable right? And there's all these different opportunities sort of happen you know that that happen there. So when I started sharing a lot of these frameworks and a lot of these principles that I had been using in the theater industry again going into a different industry talking about it with people in more of that like business and sort of entrepreneurial world for them it was this wild type of thing. I've referred to it in the past as like, go where you're awesome, not where you're ordinary. Right? So like, if you're in an industry and everybody kind of already knows that kind of stuff, then you're ordinary. Like everybody's kind of heard of it. But you go to an industry that's never heard of your ideas or the concepts that are within your industry, all of a sudden, you're you're awesome to them. You're fascinating to them. So because I was coming from this sort of theater world, I was already very, very interesting to the entrepreneurial community because not a lot of entrepreneurs are also in theater, right? A lot of them are in tech. A lot of them are in you know, other divisions, but they're not a lot of them come from a theater background or have a theater background, right? So there's that. But then I went from being a high school English teacher to becoming a Broadway producer in under two years. And when I would say that, the question would always be how? So the second that you get enough people asking you how, when you develop some frameworks around how to move faster, right? how to skip the line in a lot of these types of things, when you start to break down those concepts, what happens is people are like, oh, can you teach me that? And that's really where all of this started, where I started saying, okay, well, let me put some offers together. Let me put some talks together. Let me put some presentations together. And that's what really led to doing all of this entrepreneurial work that I, that I do these days.
0: Wonderful. And at the same time, and I am i honestly have no idea what the answer to this next question will be, I know from personal experience that, and as we have already chatted, the fails, those times you haven't succeeded can often lead to the most profound opportunities for personal growth, professional growth. Has there been a time in your professional life, Michael, when you struggled, maybe even failed at something? And if so, the important point here is less the fail and more the how you persevered. Yeah. And if there was a lesson that you learned in the process.
1: Oh, yeah. Yeah. There, There's so many. Right. And I think that like you sort of go back you think about which you know which is the big one, and I will talk about the one that basically taught me the biggest uh what I consider the biggest lesson and one of the most important lessons i've I've really ever learned in my life. so a number of years after I had left teaching, I was sort of doing more of the consulting one on one sort of coaching work type stuff, and I had a gig that was supposed to happen. And it was the only gig that I had booked because I was told that it was going to be a very, very time-consuming experience. That basically, it was going to be a, a pretty hefty price tag for this massive amount of work. So I turned down anything else that had come in, and I basically just blocked out the time. And it was the only money that was supposed to come in that month. And it was... Right around the time of the financial crisis, which uh, you might remember. And I remember going to sign this contract and getting there and them telling me, I can't sign this contract because my money is gone. And I remember having to come home to my girlfriend, then wife now, and saying, I am screwed. We do not have this money. We do not have sort of any way to sort of make this, you know, make this work. And I was reflecting on all of that and I had this realization that I had been spending all of this time giving and helping others and supporting others. And I was reticent to ever ask for what I needed. I was always, I call it the giver's fix, where when we give and we help, we get this emotional rush as a result. We get this you know, chemical feel of goodness and there is no chemical reaction associated with asking. So what tends to happen is just like an addict, we just keep giving and sort of getting high on that giving experience, right? So I had this moment where I wrote an email to probably close to a 100 people that I had met and I called it self-assessment was the title of the email. And I broke down in that email how I had been spending all of this time doing for sort of everybody else. I told about the story that had happened and how basically I've never asked and and I told everybody in that email how much trouble I was in. And I was like, I cannot pay my rent. And I'm not sure what to do. And what I said in that email was. I'm not asking any of you to do anything, but if anybody has ideas, if anybody has advice, if anybody want, you know, just wants to give a kind word, whatever you have, I'll take it right now. And I remember sending that email and basically being like, wow, everybody's going to think I am such a loser. And I'm like laying on my couch thinking, oh man, this is going to be brutal. All these, all these things that go into your head when you do that. And all of a sudden my phone just starts buzzing away. And I'm getting emails from people saying like, let's grab coffee and let's talk about this. Or, you know, what are you trying to do? Maybe I can help you, you know, think through this. Oh, I've got a friend I want to introduce you to. And it just like kept sort of flowing. And then I got a call from a friend who was also in the theater world and she reached out and she basically said, I saw your email and I wanted to call you. I've got another friend who needs a reading done and he has plenty of money to make sure that that reading happens. Whatever it is that you need, just tell him that's your price. And I can guarantee you, based on his career, he'll pay it. Like, just I'm going to introduce you to him. And I just want you to sell whatever package you need to sell to make that money. So she introduces me to this guy. I get on the phone with him. I tell him the amount. And he doesn't even blink. And I have my rent. And the thing I learned you know, from that is that it is so, so important to make sure
2: that the people within your network know what is
1: going on with you. The worst thing that you can do is suffer in silence. That vulnerability creates connection when you allow people in, when you let them know what's going on. It completely changes everything. And now I am very, very conscious in my life of what is the balance between the amount of giving that I do and the amount of asking that I do, letting people know what it is that that I need so that I don't end up in that place again where things are not, you know, working.
0: What a powerful story, Michael. I actually was getting choked up as I listened to you because I can totally imagine how oh, gut wrenching it must have been for you. To have gotten the sucker punch from this client that you were expecting to sign a big contract with and then feeling so scared Mm. that you weren't going to be able to pay your bills and then dropping the veil and putting yourself in a situation that was a very unfamiliar one. You were not the asker, you were Mm -hmm. the giver. Mm-hmm. But I also think it's a powerful example of how giving and being the giver and the one who's trying to help and not take can come back to you in spades if and when you need it.
2: Hmm. Yep.
0: Thank you so much for sharing that. Sure. Final question. Yeah. If you could go back to college, back to Rhode Island and do it all over again, but based on the wisdom you have now, what advice would you give yourself? Keep
1: track of these relationships. Take the time to put it somewhere. You know, at the time, I, there wouldn't be spreadsheets, right? But like, <laughs> you know, have it in a notebook. Like, don't just keep it all in your head because you're going to forget some of this. You're going to miss some of this. Like, make sure you are keeping track of this, would be the thing I would say.
0: Excellent advice. Michael is the co host of the Access to Anyone podcast, which you are definitely going to want to check out and subscribe to where he explores how networking in any business using the latest technology and the most time tested principles works michael i want to sincerely thank you so so much for making time for coffee today with me and the C community your gifts as a natural teacher, educator, communicator, just all around amazing networker and great guy just came shining through. This was
1: just wonderful. Thank you so much. I really, really appreciate it.
0: Thanks so much for listening to this latest episode of T4C. And if you're interested in learning more about my coaching services for confused college students and recent grads, feel free to check out the Time for Coffee website under the coaching tab at time4coffee.org or text me at 202-236-577. That's 202-236-5712. That's two zero two two three six five seven one two.